On this episode, I am joined once again by Dr. Pat Davidson. It's been a while since we had Pat on the podcast. What we are planning to do is to do a series of podcasts over the next few episodes where Pat will cover in depth the details of his latest book, A Coach's Guide to Optimizing Movement. So this episode is part one. And in this episode, Pat discusses the genesis of this book. He discusses the foundations of his model covering the seven movement pillars, which are movement quality, movement quantity, movement standardization, movement progression, movement strategy, muscular orientation, and muscular action. From here, Pat goes on to break down each of the seven pillars, component parts in detail. For those who are going to listen to this episode, I would highly encourage you to get Pat's book, A Coach's Guide to Optimizing Movement, if you don't already have it. I would suggest that you have this book in front of you while Pat is discussing all of the details in this book because this is a very in-depth conversation and if you're not very familiar with what Pat is discussing in terms of his system here, um, having the book in front of you uh, will really, really help. Now, obviously, if you are driving or doing some type of activity that doesn't allow you to be in a position to have the book in front of you, then maybe at a later stage, listen to the podcast and then go back and listen to it again when you do have time to sit down with the book so you can make notes as you go along. Because as I've already alluded to, this conversation by Pat is quite in-depth. And if you're not familiar with the principles that he is going to speak about on this episode and in the future episodes we hope to do, it may be tough to grasp the concepts and follow along. So as always, guys, this was a great episode with Pat jammed packed with information and i hope you really enjoy this part one okay pat it is an absolute pleasure to rekindle our connection here over zoom and um, want to have you on to speak about your latest book um, a coach's guide to optimizing movement which is the companion manual essentially to your rethinking the big patterns seminars so I laid out just three kind of general questions. First one was the genesis of the book, which I, I kind of have an idea of the background story, but I'd like you to, to touch into that. Then we'll get into the six foundational principles and the seven uh, movement pillars. Um, so if you want to take it away, it's the floor or the mic is all yours. I'd be happy to. And it's really, it's great to be able to reconnect. It's been hard to get a time. Like life has been really... Uh, challenging for me over these last couple of years, like in, in good ways and, and in, in tough ways. But, um, you know, it's, it's always a pleasure to be able to, to speak with you, Robbie, and um, looking forward to probably doing a few of these on this, on this book. So in terms of, of the start of this thing, it's, you know, it's funny. I actually was having some, some very recent thoughts on, um, the creation of anything and the ability to see a creation go forward. And, um, and so like, I started thinking to myself, like, 
I've had plenty of ideas in my life, you know, and a lot of, like everybody's got ideas. We all have ideas. We all have these concepts that come into our mind from who knows where they come from. And um, some concepts are better than others and more clear than others, and more powerful than others. And um, and when you get a really good concept, it's interesting because it, it kind of it begins in some way, shape or form in your head, you know, and and. I almost like to think of these things as like a light in some way. And an initial idea might be like a pen light that kind of flickers. And and you might catch it. You know what I mean? You might catch the, the sight of it. And and when you do, you can kind of focus on it a little bit more and think to yourself like, oh, okay, like I, I think I might have something with this idea here. But like what exactly is it? And when you have this idea, I think that you need a few things to take place. You need one like clarity of vision, you know, like uh, essentially what exactly am I trying to accomplish? How does this concept actually fit into like moving towards solution of a task or, or launching something forward that, that will now exist? But you also need a fuel source. You need energy to be able to drive something forward. And whenever you do that, it's it's like a, I like to think of it as like creating a line, you know, like like you have a nebulous sort of beginning and you, you hit like a pen light, like I said, and it might flicker and you can catch it and you can focus on it. And then you can begin to drive it forward and you can push it into a line of formation. And, and again, like you need energy to be put into it to drive it farther forward. Um, and, and I think that for me, this book is probably like, it was a very clear idea of something that I wanted to do. It took, it took like an idea and it, it formulated it into more of a solid uh, shape. And then I, I put a tremendous amount of energy into it for an extended period of time to to push it forward and to make it become something. And, um, you know, I started thinking like, that's probably the best I've ever done in my life in terms of like one idea that I turned into a line and I drove forward with energy and effort so that it became a thing. And it's kind of still like become, it's becoming a thing more and more. I don't know exactly where it ends, but it's a, it's, it's a part of a, a larger concept for me, this whole rethink the big patterns thing. And I'm, I'm definitely proud of it. And I can see like the value in creating something and driving something forward and, and having it take on its own momentum. But then I started thinking to myself like, oh yeah, that's something that I've done in my own life. And I'm, it's pretty good, but it's nothing compared to what some other people have done. You know, like the clarity of some other ideas you know, if you think about like Einstein and relativity or something like that, like like an idea like that comes into your head in some way, shape or form. And then you're able to to clarify it and modify it and drive energy into it and solve for it and really be able to make it something that is amazingly substantial. Uh, that's that's like this ridiculous thing that that someone is able to do or, you know, like a, an artist like a da Vinci or you know, people that build massive projects, you know, you have groups of people that come together collectively to be able to drive something forward in a line 
and to, to get rid of all of the debris from the side and to be able to really have a clarifying movement that leads to a magnificent creation. And I started to, so I was like thinking about my own stuff and like, I get plenty of ideas and most of them fizzle pretty quickly, you know, some of them get a little bit of momentum and I can push them forward a little bit more. Uh, this thing, this book is probably the biggest formation of a, of a effort that came into fruition that I've ever done. But then other people have done it to such a larger degree. And then I started to think like even outside of that, like that which is beyond even people, uh, I started to think about like uh, origin of life on this planet as starting from a single thing. And, but the concept is so good. You know what I mean? The concept of, of how it replicates and differentiates and like the rules that go into it and uh, whatever, whatever you want to say thought or uh, clarifying agency that went into the notion of the concept is so good. It's like a sing it starts as a singular thing and it's still driving forward even now. You know, my best idea is something that started as a single thing and it drove forward about three years, the time it took to go from making the first seminar to the time it took to making the book. And it, don't get me wrong, it's still going. Like I created an online platform. Like I'm hoping that this, this concept can continue to go forward. But, you know, like human endeavors, like, I, I don't know, they've been going forward a pretty good amount of time collectively. Like farming is a pretty good example of it, as a for instance. But that which is even beyond human, whatever it is that like is the life agency has been going forward for, I, I have no idea how long life has been on this planet, a tremendously long period of time. And it's still going forward. And I started to zoom back even farther from that and thinking about even like origins of like the, the universe and how from one kind of initial breath of pushing forward, like physics was formed, constraints that, that lead to the mathematics that govern uh, you know, the, the agency of matter and energy and things of that nature. And it all starts from one thing. And, and to me, it's, it really is kind of a singular breath. You know, we, every moment has this opportunity for a singular breath to form and to create the, the, the concept that can be fueled by everything that you have at your disposal to be able to really create something from there. And the more clear that singular breath can be, the more clear that initial thought can be, the better in terms of rules and possibilities, constraints, the limitless nature of, of, of growth, all of those things kind of coming together in form and still being pushed forward through, through work beyond that. But, you know, I, I really do think that that creation of things and the dedication and diligence towards being able to see something through, that's what it's all about to me. You know, the, the agency of a singular person and a group of people and a collective to be able to make things better and to truly know that you're trying to make things better with, with effort and, and willingness and desire is, uh, is to me just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I hope to just in, continue to do more of that in my life and to find other people interested in doing the same thing. And, um, 
And, and uh, so, so when I think about, you know, why I want to do the kinds of things like, like write a book, like we're going to talk about or do anything else. I, I hope that that's really the reason, you know, and I think it is for me. Um, and, and really like, I, I do feel like there were a number of people that were very influential on me to be able to try to create this, this concept in this book. And, you know, we, we talked about Bill and I, I certainly mentioned him a tremendous amount in the book and, and, uh, and doing that reckoning one presentation with him where he, he uttered that statement of like, you know, write out your model. No, seriously, write out your model. And, and it kind of lighting a fire under my ass and, um, and having the opportunity, somebody reached out to me soon after that to ask me to do a presentation at their, at their facility on, um, you know, pitfalls of, of athletes not training properly from a year round perspective. And it's funny because that was really like the first version of this thing, like way back when was that, cause I started to think to myself, like, well, what do people really do wrong in terms of trying to prepare themselves from a big picture standpoint? And it was this kind of vague, vague presentation that I was asked to give about like just athletes in general. What do, how do we save athletes from, from like screwing themselves up in the off season? And I started to think like, well, it's a really broad question. Do I have, do I have an answer for that? You know? Uh, <laughs> and and it, it kind of was like, well, how would I, how would I try to prevent someone from screwing things up for themselves if they really wanted to work hard and develop themse themselves into something? And, uh, and to me, it started with organization. And I think it still is just all based on organization. And I think that this book is a book on organization. That's, that's my, that's the, the best way I can look at it is, you know, trying to come up with as many um, categories of that, which is available for people to be able to, to physically train as they can and to understand kind of like the, that these things are in fact categories specific unto themselves interconnected for sure but also there's enough of a differentiation. It's pushed enough over here where this kind of movement is in fact different from this kind of movement. And just because you're good at this thing over here doesn't mean you're good at this thing over here. And if you don't prepare with every specific thing in a logical, sequential, organized fashion, well, there's your pitfalls. There's your areas where you're probably going to get yourself in trouble but it's almost like what's the stepwise way to be able to instruct people on everything that's available to them and then to have them figure out how to selectively target the most important areas for them for their own needs to be able to ensure that they're creating a, a good backbone of developmental product for themselves that they can launch off of for the best specific training to be able to um, you know, peak for the most important times of the year for their performance. So, you know, it's, that's kind of, at least to me, like where this thing sort of starts is, um, is I'm always trying to problem solve. What's the problem? You know, how do I, how do I get people? It's almost like it's, you think about like, uh, like a concept, like a hundred meters, seems like a really, really simple concept. 
run 100 meters faster than everybody else, okay? Uh, run 100 meters faster than you ever did before. Okay, easy. How do I do that? I run faster. Well, good luck with that, you know? How do you run faster over time? Well, you have to do more runs that are fast. Okay, well, good luck with that because what happens when people try to do more runs that are fast? You know, a million things go wrong for them. Like, I've seen people try to start like sprint programs that Derek Hansen has put together. And like, they just do a million things wrong. And within the first two weeks, they're like, oh, my hamstring, oh, my adductor, oh, my this, oh, my that. And it's like, well, what were you doing exactly? Oh, you came out of the gates running at 100% rather than what it said to do is 80%. I, that might be the reason. Or, you know, you, you tried to jump into this program and you were 40 pounds overweight. Or, you know, there's like, there's just so many things that you could do wrong. Or you weren't getting enough sleep or you weren't eating appropriately or you weren't hydrating appropriately or you fill in the blanks. Like, you, there's, there's so many ways that people can attempt to try to get somewhere and then completely disintegrate the process through planning errors, uh, execution errors, logistical errors. You know, it's, it's just, there's, there's always those things. So can I begin to create a framework that can have, uh, hopefully attempt to avoid those kinds of things. And the book that I put together was not a program design book. You know, that's, that's a different topic altogether. Uh, the book I put together was an organization of different training modalities in, in a lot of ways, I guess you could call it a modality in different domains of, you know, uh, let's say just like, you know, I tried to divide it really into like qualitative movement domains, quantitative movement domains. And from there, you know, I guess, I guess if I'm really going to get into the, the whole thing, uh, the best way to organize the thought process behind the book is through the seven pillars of movement that I put together. And, uh, and those pillars, pillar one was movement quality, which is not like, how good do you move? It's much more of like, what are the different qualitative domains of movement, you know? Uh, and I tried to divide it into um, 13 motor programs, which were breathing, core exercises for the pelvis, core exercises for the thorax, um, locomotion, triple extension, change of direction, throwing, hip dominant movements, knee dominant movements, horizontal pushing, horizontal pulling, vertical pushing, and vertical pulling, okay? Just because you're good at vertical pulling, it doesn't mean you're good at locomotion. Uh, and inside of, of the 13 uh, motor programs, or in addition to those, then there are uh, the planes of motion, uh, sagittal, frontal, and transverse. And then there are the different stances that you can be in, a bilateral stance, a forward, backward, staggered stance, and a lateral staggered stance. And, and to me, it was just like, well, just because you're good at knee-dominant movements in a bilateral stance doesn't mean that you're good at knee-dominant movements in a forward-backward stance. I've seen plenty of people that can squat a lot, and you ask them to do a split squat, and it's just like a complete disaster. Um, you know, so there's, there's specificity within each of those things. And uh, 
there's I just feel like there's so many examples. Like I, I always use Charles Barkley as an example of these things where you're talking about someone that is probably a top 15 basketball player that's ever lived and someone that is a top 15 worst golf swing that's ever existed kind of a guy. And it's like, how could someone who is in the 99.999th percentile of athleticism for the sport of basketball, who is, you know, a six foot, six inch man that could run, jump, rebound, pivot, uh, pass, like everything that you could possibly do in the game. He was incredibly skilled, incredibly powerful, uh, just otherworldly athletic in some ways for a man of his, his shape too. But then you ask him, like, it, it almost doesn't make sense that someone that could be that coordinated and that smooth in all of the facets that make up basketball, you ask them to try to hit a ball with a club, and it's, it's like the most uncoordinated, uh, confused motion that you'll ever watch a human being do, you know? And, uh, and, and it really just comes down to, like, he doesn't know how to do that motion. And I'm sure that if you measured all of his like, you know, table tests on a like in joints and all that kind of stuff, he's probably pretty damn good. You know what I mean? I, I don't think the moves that Charles Barkley had, you can't play basketball at that level for as long as he did and not be a pretty damn good mover. Uh, so it's not like he was lacking. He probably wasn't like a complete stiff. He wasn't lacking all these rotational components and being able to get his hip into flexion and do all that kind of stuff. But there was something that just was so completely untrained with the motion that would be a golf swing. Uh, just trying to make those, those turns with the hips and then laterally shifting the hips and having the, the thorax lag behind the pelvis. And it was just such a foreign motion. And, you know, that's where I was trying to get to with this book is, is that you got all these different qualitative motions and just because you're good at one doesn't mean you're good at the other, you know, and there's probably a number of reasons why you might not be good at those, but those are further pillars. Uh, you know, pillar two was, was movement quantity. And that really had everything to do with, with load velocity and duration. So it's kind of saying like, Hey, even with locomotion, just because you're good at high velocity uh, locomotion doesn't mean you're going to be good with long duration locomotion. There's plenty of people that are super fast for sprints that are not going to be able to run a long distance really well. So what do you need to do? What do you need to be able to be good at? You better focus on that to a certain degree in training, because if you do the other realm of that, uh, it's, it might not be specific for what you need to accomplish. So I, I tried to, to just differentiate and say, look, there's there's high loaded exercises, low loaded exercises, moderate loaded exercises, and, and there will be specific adaptations that take place to those different domains of loading that are different from one another. And, you know, the research kind of supports that idea. Uh, even if we have equal hypertrophy responses from different loading zones all the way down to 30% one rep max, if you're closer to one rep max, you'll probably get the same kind of hypertrophy, but you'll be a lot stronger, but you'll also be putting a hell of a lot more stress on your connective tissues and tendons and ligaments. So there's always these trade-offs, but what do you need to be good at? What do you really need to have happen with your body? You better, you better target it and isolate it um, in some way, shape or form at the right time, or you will not have done what you needed to do for your own specific needs. Um, 
and so there's there's all those different specific zones of of those quantitative factors that you you know when, when I was thinking about this like how would I go about like uh, des- like picking exercises for someone and designing an exercise program for someone well I would start by choosing the motor programs that this individual needs and I would choose the stances that they need to do those motor programs from and I would choose the primary planes that they need to do those motor programs and those stances in. Uh, and now that I've done that, now I would select, you know, the appropriate loading zone, heavy, moderate load or light. And then I would choose the appropriate speed for that person, fast, moderate or slow. And then I would choose the proper duration, uh, short duration, moderate duration and long duration. And, and by making those combinations, I kind of arrive at the right tool for the job in terms of exercise selection. Uh, once I've kind of come up with the right exercise from a selection standpoint, that's when I move on to the third pillar, which was uh, movement standardization. And that standardization is based on saying that, you know what, there are in fact right ways to do exercises to, depending upon the plane of motion that you're in. And, and I tried to come up with what I called sensory motor competencies as the thing that defines the right way to do exercise. So there's sagittal plane sensory motor competencies, frontal plane and transverse plane sensory motor competencies. So there's this this thought process in the book and in this model that there's a right way for an exercise to look if it's a sagittal plane drill and there's a right way for it to feel if it's a sagittal plane drill. Uh, And then there's also if if it's not feeling right and if it's not looking right, there is a troubleshooting methodology to it that you can go down to be able to help correct for it. Uh, But it's, it's at least defined. It's at least like a a standardized approach uh, so that you can return back to it. I I want you to choose the right drills and I want you to do them the right way. And, and that right way for the most part is based on control of center of mass. And when the center of mass is controlled, there's a certain look to it. And when it's controlled, there's a certain feel to it. And what I mean by feel is that there should be target tissues that are associated with having the body in the right position. And as a, for instance, when we're talking about sagittal plane drills, generally speaking, it's going to be the internal obliques and the hamstrings and the glute max that are going to be your, your, your target tissues for controlling center of mass. Now, of course, if you're doing a bench press, you have additional target tissues layered on there, which is going to be pectoral muscles, triceps, deltoids, those primary pushing muscles. And if you're doing a horizontal pull, you'll have other muscles that are going to be primary target muscles as well, which will be mid-back muscles uh, and, and lats. But, you know, if you don't have some degree of internal oblique, hamstring and glute, your center of mass is not going to be held in the right place to be able to even give you some of those additional target tissues being recruited in the right way. So, um, you know, uh, to me, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, in connecting the concept of exercise and medicine aka, or pharmacology together conceptually. And when I think about pharmacology, I think that it's about Uh, an appropriate drug being administered in the right dose to a person and that the drug needs to be very accurate in terms of uh, the 
the appropriate target tissues, the appropriate target cells that the drug is trying to hit. And very old pharmacology, it generally is very nonspecific. You know, it's almost like if you were to take a look at performance enhancing drugs over time, you know, you can look back and steroids are a very early one. And steroids are nonspecific as a drug. They, they, there is an androgen receptor in every cell of your body and steroids bind to every cell in your body, which is why you get some of the, you know, side effects such as cardiac abnormalities or prostate enlargement or organ hypertrophy that you'll see with, with long-time steroid users. Uh, and, and there's always these attempts to be able to make performance-enhancing drugs more specific and targeted. And, you know, you can look at some peptide drugs that do not bind to anything except for skeletal muscle, and they avoid some of like the prostate hypertrophy things that can come from steroid use. So with what I'm trying to accomplish, if I can get the center of mass to be held in a place where I believe that the skull is centered over the center of mass of the thorax, and that the center of mass of the thorax is centered over the center of mass of the pelvis, I believe that I'll be standardizing the position of the axial skeleton. And now that I've standardized the position of the axial skeleton, when I go to do other movements with my appendages, and I go to begin shifting my axial skeleton uh, through space, uh, either like projecting it forward or, or shifting it side to side or turning it, I think that I'm more likely to hit the appropriate target tissues for the best case muscles that should be driving the motion that I'm trying to accomplish. And the more non-centered my axial skeleton is, the more unpredictable the tissues are going to be that I'm going to be recruiting and fatiguing while I'm doing whatever kind of movement it is that I'm trying to do. And to me, it's kind of like uh, predictability from a performance standpoint is a huge, huge factor. Like I, I really want things to be as predictable and uh, constrained and controlled as I can possibly get them. Uh, and if I do that, then I know what's working in the system. And if I know what's working in the system and I can account for that, I can begin to drive the wheels of progress forward and I can do it for a longer period of time. Uh, it's like building a factory. Like I need to know that the machines are in a proper, or they're in some kind of standardized state. If the machines aren't in a standardized state, then I can't really begin to understand uh, a projection of, of the outputs that I'm trying to get. Uh, so if the machines are in a different place every day, or if the gears are slightly in a different place every day, I don't know exactly what kind of product I'm going to get. And if I don't know that, then it's hard for me to be able to organize and drive production of that exact product up. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do with performance. I'm trying to ensure that I get exactly what I'm trying to accomplish. Even if it's a low level of performance on the first day, it almost doesn't matter as long as it's standardized. And then once it's standardized and I can stay standardized, now I really know 
if I'm getting better or if I'm not getting better. So that's kind of step one is, am I doing the movements as close to the same as I possibly can on a regular basis as possible? And if I begin to check off that box, now I can actually determine if I'm driving things in a direction or not. So that's kind of the basis of that third pillar. Uh, the fourth pillar is uh, movement progression. And I came up with the big 10 principles of progression uh, to help me with, with organizing that concept. And, and those principles of progression, they basically tell you where to start and then how to move forward from there. But it's not like, uh, you know, uh, the first exercise for this is always going to be rear foot elevated split squat with dumbbells. Like, it, you know, that's, that's not, that's not the way I wanted to do it. I wanted to make it more of a, of a principle or a concept based thing that people could, could understand on, on a, on a bigger picture level. And that would apply across all motor patterns, not just like, Hey, here's my progressions for knee dominant exercises. No, I don't want it to work that way. I want it to be universal progression principles for all forms of exercise. So I'll do my best to try to remember these 10. I always get like nine of them and forget one of them, but we'll see what happens here. So I said, start static with your exercises. Uh, start sagittal. Start um, with minimizing range of motion to only that which you can remain competent in. And competency is defined by sensory motor competency specific for planes. Uh, start with short levers. Start with maximizing references. And references are specific parts of your body that I want you to feel while you're doing an exercise. Like as a, for instance, sagittal plane, the primary reference is, is heels. Uh, start with um, <clears throat> maximizing constraints. Start with maximizing reactive neuromuscular training. Uh, let's see, well, start by minimizing training load. And this isn't just like how heavy is the bar on day one. This is really stuff that kind of lives. I would say that, that Mike Isretel's concepts regarding like, uh, you know, understanding uh, volume landmarks are a big one for this, you know, understand that which is like maintenance volume, minimum effective volume, maximum adaptive volume, maximum recoverable volume. And do not start with maximum recoverable volume. You'd have to be insane. Probably figure out what maintenance volume is first <laughs> and then go to minimum effective volume. And then minimum effective volume is going to get bumped out to, to the other ones. But, but don't, don't be in a, you're not going to win the marathon in the first mile. You know, you got to start with the minimum that you can get reward from and, and make a big runway. Don't start with the heaviest possible exercise. Start with something that, that you're going to get results from that is, that is going to limit load and still give you tremendous number of benefits. You got plenty of time to grow into whatever it is you're trying to grow into, but start with, start by firing bullets before you pull out the cannonballs. Um, let's see, what else do I have in this damn list? Uh, <laughs> oh God, I always forget at least one or two. I've, I've, now the I'm only, down two. The only, no, it's only one, I think. I have the list here. Um, 
Yeah, I think the only one you left out was start bilateral uh, symmetrical. So like the the, the ten here, yeah. the ten here in order were start static. You said that start sagittal, yeah. start bilateral symmetrical, minimize mm -hmm. the difficulty of managing gravity. Forgot that one too. Li limiting range of motion to the zone of sensory motor compensation. You did say that. Start with short levers. You said provide reactive neuromuscular training. You said. And then the last three were maximize references, maximize constraints, and minimize load. And he definitely said those three. Yeah. Uh, just before you go on, everything open, everything in the book up until this point for me, like it really resonated with me. But then when I got to this part, I was like, oh, this, this took deep thought. Like this is different now. Now we're veering in a different direction to any training book I've read before. Like, okay, star static, star sagittal, yes. But and start bilateral, yes, few things here. But when he started, even like I was like reactive neuromuscular, like how did that come into the concept? And and just the way the list was written out, like zone of acquisition, sensory motor, um, it, it was just to me more a lot more thought was put into that end, you know. Then you know, like the foundational principles make sense because of our previous conversations and and uh, your way of thinking, and even like the um taxonomy of all of your exercises so again the breathing the cord locomotion change of direction throwing triple extension hip knee dominant horizontal vertical push and pull like all that made sense and even like the the seven movement pillars like like all that but when i came to this big 10 here of progression like even you kind of touched on it there you're like i didn't just want this to be like okay rear foot out of a split squat of dumbbells then phase two barbell then phase three clean grip at the bar do you know what i mean like that yeah, kind yeah. Of so i could just clearly see like this like this is something that was a lot more cerebral like this took time this took effort this this took yeah it, it this you could see yeah, like there was a there was a difficulty in this creation which is what mastery is yeah. to go to that place and i'll tell you like where i try to give an example of this in seminars is um I always say to people, what's the first drill that you would ever give to somebody when you're teaching them how to run, you know, and how does it fit into this model? And generally speaking, every time I've seen a good track and field coach give the first drill that they give to someone to run, it's long seated arm swings, you know, and it's like, well, what are you, what are they doing here? Well, they're getting you to, to start bilateral from a stance standpoint. They minimize the difficulty of managing gravity. They build in more constraints because the, the ground isn't letting you like, you know, use your legs and get yourself all out of place. Uh, you know, it's short levers because now we're only dealing with arms moving through space. Um, you're you're in, increasing the likelihood of sensory motor competency in the sagittal plane because the only way you, you have like, you're gonna to have to stand up straight basically, but from your butt, like you're, you're putting your axial skeleton into an ideal position. Um, it's got all the things in it. References are in there for the sagittal plane because your heels are against the ground. It ensures that you're going to get the outcome that you want on the first thing that you do with somebody to a much higher degree. You know, I, I, put, all, I put the whole list together because I want people to do things right. Uh, and I, I was trying to think about this, even from the perspective of, of something like shooting a basketball, like, can this list 
actually work outside of fitness? I think it does. Like if I'm going to try to teach someone to shoot a basketball, I want to give them a layup as the first thing that they do, but not even one where they're running in towards the hoop. Like we're going to stand right here, right kind of, you know, like probably not directly in front of, maybe at the angle so you can use the backboard a little bit, but I want you to just stay right here. We're going to stand right here. We're going to shoot. We're going to figure this out. And we're going to do this layup for a while before we even move back to a mid-range jumper. You know, the last thing I want to give to somebody as their first basketball shot is like a half court shot. It's way too difficult. It doesn't make any sense. And, and no one in their right mind would ever do that. But when I go to the gym and I see coaches and trainers work with people, oftentimes their first selection for an exercise for a new person is the equivalent of a half court shot for the person that they're working with. And it's kind of like, this is a bad choice for this person. They don't know how to shoot the layup right, and you're giving them a half-court shot. There's basically a 0% chance for them to do this right and get much benefit from it. And, like, there's just no need to go there yet. You can get an unbelievable amount of, of benefit and yield from a much easier place. Like, just start with layups. So it was like trying to create a list that would push people towards providing the layup version of every exercise as the first choice for, for what you'd start people off with. And it's kind of like, well, how do I get there? And if you understand what all of these concepts mean, it just walks you right there. It brings you directly to it. And I did provide in every chapter on the patterns, like here's my list of what I think a layup is. Here's the number one thing. Like, and I certainly have all the other things that I think make sense from the standpoint of making all of those other areas move forward from a progression standpoint. But to me, the most important thing is, can you find the layup version of the concept and start there? And if you can do that, now the person has a real shot of making real progress in terms of, you know, just having a greater, greater playbook for exercise uh, utilization that they can go with in the future. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that's, that's like the, the big 10 and, and, and I do think it's a good list. I, I do think that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like most of this book is me taking concepts from other people that I've learned along the way and, uh, and just organizing them into one model. But that big 10 was, I feel like my own thing. Um, and I'm, I'm, I was pretty happy to put that thing together. And again, I didn't come up with all the concepts, but I, again, kind of put them together in a way that I felt like was, was a nice organizational system for, for how, to, how to create principles to driving you towards progression. Now, the other part of, uh, of this, what is it, the fourth, yeah, fourth pillar, on progression is is Bill's um, you know movement arc, I, I the propulsion arc, and you know I tried to like Bill has his own terminology that he's going to speak with on it, and I certainly don't ever want to step on his feet with his own stuff, you know he he obviously knows uh, his material better than anybody else, and and I feel like I'm still kind of uh, you know scratching around the edges in terms of 
uh, true mastery or anything even close to that over over his material. But I, I, I just wanted to uh, take the concept and uh, try to apply it to as many exercises and, and motor patterns as I could in a language that makes the most sense for me. Okay. Uh, and so I tried to divide that, that uh, propulsion arc up into three zones. That would be, you know, the two, the two expansion zones at the ends and the one compression zone in the middle. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I kind of think of it as like a, you know, I think of it more from like a baseball or a swinging sport perspective or a throwing activity perspective than even gait. You know, there's, to me, there's always a wind up, uh, a strike in the middle and then a follow through at the end. And you have to have a good wind up, a good, a good like midpoint of, of propulsion or launch. And you have to be able to follow through effectively. And if you have a problem in any of those areas, it's going to affect the whole thing. You're never gonna have the uh, optimized version of a movement if you're lacking in any of those, those three areas. So I was just trying to think of it from that perspective of like, any, any motion you can think of in some way, shape or form kind of features those things to a certain degree. Like, you know, to me, a squat, it's kind of like, I get to the bottom of the squat, it's almost like the wind up, I get to the middle of the squat, it's the peak of, of getting through the sticking point, I get to the top of the squat, it's kind of like the follow through, you know, and it's, it's almost like some motions don't have the full thing. Like if I'm throwing a baseball, it's got the full thing. It's got the wind up. It's very obvious to see. It's got the release point where you're creating the maximum amount of forward propulsion on the object. It's got the follow through where you're, you're coming across the body and decelerating with the other side of your body. Uh, but then if you look at kind of like a punch, like if someone's a jab and a cross, a cross, it, um, it doesn't really feature the same kind of wind up or follow through. You know, it's, it's got a little bit of a wind up. It's almost like you get your wind up from the jab and then pop, you drive into that, that second zone, that peak of compression zone, but you don't really get to go into a full follow through. You kind of have to come back before you do that. It's like a little bit of a wind up, compress, come back. It's, it's not a full arcing motion. A golf swing, for instance, is the epitome, the ultimate of the full arcing motion, the full, the full backswing, the impact with the ball, and then the full follow through. Um, and like a deadlift, it doesn't have the full thing. It's just kind of like, uh, because if it, if it went through the full thing of a windup, you'd be in a squat. You know, it's like you kind of get to the peak of compression and then you leave that place and you go into your follow through. It's not the whole, the whole arcing concept. So, but with pretty much everything, like you're able to look at it through those lenses of, of, of sort of wind up compression point, release point, uh, peak point, and then follow through. And I tried to just give some guidance on like, you know, what, what are, are there typical joint actions or joint motions that correspond with these things? And, and there are, and you know, this is certainly stuff that I got from Bill where if you're in that wind up or follow through, which is the expansion zones, there's, there's stereotypical things that correspond to that. It's an inhale. Um, it's going to be a yielding dominated thing. 
it's going to be, um, you know, something more associated with, with eccentric uh, statuses of tissues. It's going to be something that will probably feature plantar flexion, supination, uh, external rotation, flexion, abduction. Um, you know, those are, those are going to be the joint actions that are going to live with that. And then that peak of compression, uh, the release point of throwing something, the impact point of hitting something, that's going to be the thing that's going to be dominated by the exhale, the uh, overcoming muscle actions, the compression. Uh, it's going to be something that's going to be uh, concentric muscle status. It's going to be internal rotation, dorsiflexion, pronation, extension, adduction. Uh, all of those things are going to ride with that. Uh, and, and most of the time, you know, good sporting motions are the ability to translate back and forth between those things. If I'm, if I'm trying to throw a ball in my windup, I can see my arm is going to feature uh, supination. It's going to be externally rotated. It's going to be flexed. It's going to be abducted. And the other arm, the, the non-throwing arm, the leading arm, it's going to be in the exact opposite position. It's going to be extended. It's going to be pronated. It's going to be internally rotated. And when I go to throw the ball, the two arms are going to switch. The throwing arm is going to leave this position of supination and ER uh, and flexion and abduction. And it's going to, be, it's going to start this, this process of becoming more and more pronated and uh, internally rotated and extended and adducted. And I have to do those things to launch something through space. Meanwhile, the other arm is doing the exact opposite. It's going to be becoming more and more supinated and externally rotated and flexed and abducted. And, uh, and one is going to be taking part in kind of acceleration and the other one is going to be dominating and taking part in deceleration and absorbing. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's very useful to know that that's kind of a, the stereotypical things that take place. And, and my advice on exercise was to try to start people with more of these deceleration kinds of concepts, more of the expansion concepts, more of the inhale related concepts. Uh, and, and it's almost like you, you tend to see people do this without knowing that they're doing it anyways. You know, people will go with more of a dumbbell bench press to teach a new person neutral grip. People will tend to go with a trap bar as their first deadlift selection. Uh, you know, when people have shoulder pro or a goblet squat is another example. Um, if you elevate the heels, you're giving another example. You're, you're just going to increase the probabilities of the person uh, moving their joints through space in the right way, getting really good range of motion, getting a really good training outcome by feeding more and more of those, what I, what I referred to in this is zone one concepts uh, into, the, into the model. And the zone one is, is simply like uh, the humerus is flexed between zero and 60 degrees or the femur is flexed between uh, zero and 60 degrees. Uh, and it's just an easier place to do a lot of these things from. Uh, you know, when I think about how would I, how, what are some examples of, of, of something like that? When I start someone off with a bench press, for instance, I'll usually elevate their feet. Uh, I'll put blocks under their feet and that way their, their hip is not as extended. 
you know, it, it goes into a position of somewhere usually between uh, 20 and 50 degrees of flexion. I, you know, I don't usually put their foot, their feet completely up on top of the bench, but I'll, I'll usually put them, I'll build some blocks up so maybe four or five inches off the ground so that their knees are, are higher than the bench is when they're benching. And, um, you know, I, I, I usually, and I'll usually use some kind of a neutral grip apparatus, a dumbbell or a Swiss bar or something like that. And, and usually I hear a whole lot less complaints about non-target tissues like shoulders or necks or anything like that. And usually I get, you know, a little bit of abs when people are benching that way, their body is in a really good position. It looks good. And I get a lot of muscular recruitment from pecs and shoulders and triceps, which is what I'm looking for. Uh, when I think about how would I start someone off with a, a horizontal pull, uh, usually I'll go with, if I have it available to me, a chest supported row. And, you know, I'll usually walk their feet forward a little bit and plantar flex their feet. And even if you look at most bodybuilding machines, they're designed that way. It's got the little foot thing out in front of you that you put your foot on. It kind of plantar flexes you without you even thinking about it or knowing it. It's a neutral grip. You row it into your body and it, it brings your humerus from being flexed at 90 down to basically zero at the end. Uh, and you're spending most of your time in that zone one area. I'm not going to start somebody off with a row with a bent over barbell row where their hands are pronated and their arms are more internally rotated. Usually it gets pretty ugly in that position. Uh, so when in doubt, feed more of the zone one concepts for a squat. I'm going to try to heel elevate and I'm going to put the, I'm going to usually give them a goblet squat so that their humerus is going to be flexed between zero and 60. And I usually get a really good looking squat that people feel the right muscles on and I don't have any problems with. And I don't have to coach it until I'm blue in the face. It just kind of works very nicely. So, uh, you know, then progress from there. Go from zone one to zone two to zone three. If I'm talking about zone two, zone two is, is from 60 degrees of humeral flexion up to 120 degrees of humeral flexion. And zone three is beyond 120 degrees of flexion. So if I'm talking about a squat, I'm going to go from a goblet squat to a front squat to an overhead squat. You know, and it's like, oh, guess what? I probably would have done that anyways if I was a coach. But now you have something a little bit more universal and principle based behind that thought process so that you can think about it from other areas as well uh, in terms of just organizing training and and making good logical decisions. Uh, and if you're in some of these zones, you have a better idea of what to do with uh, positioning hands and things of that nature. Where if you're, if you're doing a row, you're probably going to want to do more of a neutral grip if you can. Uh, if you're doing a, you know, other, other kinds of activities where you're staying more at a 90 degree position of, of the humerus in space, you're probably going to want to do more of an internally rotated arm and a, and a pronated hand. Uh, so it's, it's, again, it's just trying to give a little bit more context and a bigger picture backdrop rather than just, you know, uh, you know just flinging exercises out at people um, as a progression concept. So that, that, that kind of finishes that fourth pillar. Um, and then pillars five, six, and seven, they get much more into uh, the mechanisms of how things work. 
you know, pillars one through four, if, if all you wanted was just like, uh, Hey, I'm a coach. I don't really care about all the mechanisms of movement. I just want to do my job better and program and plug in exercises. All you really need are pillars one through four. But if you want to take that deeper dive five, six, and seven are where you do that. And five is movement strategies. Six is um, muscular actions and seven is muscular orientations. So for strategies, that's expansion and compression. For actions, it's overcoming and yielding. And for orientations, it's concentric and eccentric. And these things usually like are so closely in intertwined, it's kind of insane. And, and once you, I feel like once you understand these mechanisms, you can really know what you're looking for and trying to accomplish with the different drills that you select. Um, and I know that, that for today, we're, we're close on time for our cap. So uh, in some ways, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just run through the, the definitions of these things and then explain some of the ways that they have some interplay with each other. So expansion is, um, you know, there's only two ways that everything in the universe works. It's either expanding or it's compressing. Uh, you know, there's limitlessness and there's constraints there, but it's, it's kind of like there's some for a human frame with the constraints of our skeleton, there are just the specific things that kind of roll along with what that, which defines expansion, that which defines compression. We kind of already went through those things. Expansion is going to be inhalation from a ventilation standpoint, plantar flexion, supination, external rotation, abduction, uh, um, and, and flexion, okay? Uh, compression is going to be exhalation from a ventilatory standpoint, pronation, dorsiflexion, extension, adduction, and internal rotation. Those are, those are all the things that define compression and expansion. Uh, when we get to muscular actions, yielding is absorbing, it's accepting, it's slowing down, it's decelerating, it's all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then overcoming is producing, accelerating, giving, it's those things. Um, and then from an orientation standpoint, there is a mid-zone mid length of tissues. And then if the tissue gets longer, it's going into an eccentric state. And if the tissue gets shorter, it's going into a concentric state. And then there's a way in which these things kind of interact with each other. So uh, I can start by just talking a little bit about the interactions of muscle or, or I, probably better to say tissue orientations and uh, tissue actions where, you know, if I, if I have a eccentric tissue and I am yielding, then I have the ability to go into the full range of yielding range of motion. If I'm able to achieve an eccentric status of the tissues that would be going in that direction. If I'm unable to achieve an eccentric status of those tissues, I will not be able to go into the full range of motion for the yielding range of motion. If I remain in a concentric orientation while yielding, 
I won't be able to go into the full range of yielding range of motion for those tissues, but there may be enormous benefit from being able to do that. If I'm trying to do reactive training, uh, sprinting, very, you know, plyo plyometric type training, I want to hold a concentric orientation of tissues so that I limit yielding range of motion. And if I do that, I'll store and release maximum amount of elastic energy, and I'll be able to provide the right kind of, you know, framework for the task that I'm trying to accomplish to optimize it and promote it to the highest degree that I can. Uh, if I'm trying to go through a uh, full range of motion for yoga poses, I better be able to get out of a concentric orientation of tissues, you know? Uh, so I think that, that that's, that's really like, usually if I can explain that kind of stuff, people begin to see the, the real benefit of it. I mean, if, if, if experienced people in speed development are listening, they kind of know some terms like, you know, stiffness of tissues and things like that, or musculotendinous stiffness as being this incredibly important concept. And, um, you know, when, when you look at people that are very fast sprinters versus very slow sprinters, you'll see that faster people typically demonstrate less flexion at the ankle, knee and hip uh, during the time that they're on the ground. Uh, and as a result of that, there's less ground contact time and like, you know, there's a, there's a small difference in percentages when you talk about an 11 second, hundred meters versus a 10 second, hundred meters. But if you were to look at the ground contact time between someone running an 11 second, hundred meters and a 10 second, hundred meters, there's somewhere around a 300% difference in ground contact time. So it's kind of like, and, and why is there that difference? Well, again, there's probably uh, a significant difference in musculotendinous stiffness between the two individuals that leads to less deformation, but it, it's ultimately living in this ability to hold tissue orientations during a yielding action. You know, that, that is the difference maker in that realm. Now, of course, there's so many other realms of fitness and performance that are unique to themselves. But it is, in my opinion, this degree, like a golf swing, for instance, you better be able to get into eccentric orientations of tissues to be able to get into a backswing and a follow through. If you can't, then you look like me trying to swing a golf club, which is like kind of sticky and it sort of is a little herky-jerky. The ball still goes a long way, but it's not smooth and it's not consistent because the positions are not optimal for that motion. And they're not optimal for that motion because I can't reach the appropriate orientation of the right tissues at the right time for that task. And there's a lot of work that would need to be done to be able to get there. And, and that's not even the, like, where I was trying to get to in a lot of ways in this book is people get obsessed with like page five solutions 
without even understanding page one categories. It's like people are trying to solve for things that they don't even understand the notion of, you know, <clears throat> I need more range of motion. Okay, great. What is the essence of that? What is the, you know, the feature that you're really trying to get at? And, and it's kind of like, well, it lives inside pillars five, six, and seven. And then being able to, to get to the right, uh, the right thing. And, and as the last specific example that I'll give that, that is a very fitness oriented concept is the differentiation between the squat and the deadlift, because it's an easier thing to see for people because a golf swing is so complicated with so many moving pieces in turning and, and, and the, the tissues are just inordinate in terms of being able to do it. Right. But a squat and a deadlift is a little bit more straightforward. And the primary thing that we're going to be looking at from a tissue orientation standpoint, at least with the way that Bill talks about these things, is going to be the pelvic floor. And if I'm trying to squat and I'm trying to make it a very vertically oriented squat, what I need to accomplish, first of all, I don't want my hips to sit too far back. I want my hips to sit down and up. If I'm trying to deadlift, I want my hips to sit back and forward. So if I'm going to squat and I don't want to sit too far back, what I need to have take place is I need a concentric orientation of my posterior pelvic floor. If I have a concentric orientation of the posterior pelvic floor, it will be a blocker that won't let me yield in a posterior direction. It'll prevent that. But what I need is an eccentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor. If I achieve an eccentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor, it allows me to descend in a yielding manner straight down. So if I have a, a eccentric orientation of both the posterior and the, and the anterior pelvic floors, I kind of have no idea where your squat is going. And you'll oftentimes see this with people where it's like, it kind of is, is it a deadlift? Is it a good morning? Is it a squat? I don't really know. At different points in time, it changes. Uh, throughout the entirety of a squat, I want the posterior pelvic floor to remain concentric. And I want on the way down, I need to reach an, an eccentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor to be able to get to the bottom of the squat. As I come back up from the squat in that mid zone where most people fail in that sticking point of the squat, I need to be able to reach a concentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor so that I can finish the movement through the top. Um, if I'm taking a look at the deadlift, what I'm trying to accomplish is I'm trying to allow for an eccentric orientation of the posterior pelvic floor while I create a concentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor. And if I accomplish that, then what's going to happen is my hips will sit backwards in space and I won't just drop straight. You know, when you see people deadlift and it looks like, uh, you know, they're, they're just these very ankle dominant deadlifters. It's like, uh, or they just round their back completely because their hips just don't sit back in space. They just can't seem to achieve an eccentric orientation of the posterior pelvic floor. So, 
you know, now the, the, the last item on this particular topic to get to, because coaches would be listening to this and be like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I for sure have athletes or clients that I work with. And like, you know, they're very like squatty deadlifters or they're very like hingy squatters. And that's not great to see. And I'm understanding what you're saying about this pelvic floor thing. But like, how do I coach a pelvic floor? Like, that sounds like it's outside my scope. Well, I'm never saying that you should be telling people that they should be thinking about their pelvic floor. I'm just simply telling you that those are the tissues that are the blockers or the allowers of being able to get into certain positions. But it's, those are associated with very stereotypical states of the skeleton, which is the ability to reach a, 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 an exhaled skeletal state which is associated with that deadlift pattern or an inhaled skeletal state, which is going to be associated more with that squat pattern. And if people are lacking the ability to squat properly, you go to those expansion dominant joint actions and you feed them more and more and more of those joint actions in the setup of the exercise to feed them the ability to have an anterior or anterior eccentric oriented pelvic floor and a posterior concentric pelvic floor. So you elevate the heels, you put the arms in a zero to 60 degrees of flexion standpoint, you supinate the hands, you externally rotate the hands, you do all those things and it leads to the outcome that you want. You do the opposite with something like a hinge. You know, there's a million ways that you can skin the cat. You know, sometimes if you have this person that the hips just don't sit back, they just keep rounding their back or they just keep dorsiflexing forward to kind of try to drop down into that deadlift. Maybe you tell them to exhale on the way down. Maybe you elevate their toes a little bit. Maybe you give them a kettlebell to hold, but by the horns over the top so that they pronate their hands more. You know, there's, there's a million ways to be able to try to feed through these joint actions and ventilatory strategies, the person in the direction that you're really trying to move them into for them to be able to accomplish the task that requires certain kinds of orientations of tissues. And a lot of times good coaches have been doing this anyways without understanding a lot of these background pieces of information that I'm talking about here. But what I'm hoping is that by providing more of these background pieces and when people really can understand it, it makes your job so much easier because now all of a sudden when I see something that's not the way that I want it to be, I have this checklist I can go through that just problem solves this for me so quickly and I can set the person up so much faster. And it's like, I'm pretty sure this is going to work for you. And then the probability that it is going to work for them is dramatically higher than it was before having these checklists. For, for me personally, the, the last 10, 15 minutes really have um, connected a lot of dots together. So it's, it's, and just for the listeners, if you don't have Pat's book, 
it's going to be very hard to grasp the concepts he's, he's speaking of here because because uh, I'm sitting here and I'm just, as Pat is speaking, I'm actually going through the sections in the chapters. So, for instance, just with regards to the propulsive arc, there's a fantastic diagram of it on page 51 and it goes through like the strategies that go to each part of that propulsive arc so that that Pat had expanded on. So uh, it has his early propulsion and late propulsion, which are zones one and three. Again, if you don't have this in front of you, it, it might be hard to visualize, but they then link up to, as Pat was saying, expansion, inhalation, flexion, external rotation, supination, planar flexion, abduction, and yielding. And then in that mid zone, you have the compression strategies and, and everything that's related to them. So I'm just saying this for the listener's sake that to really grasp what Pat's getting at here, you you are going to need to read the book or I would, sorry, I take that back, study the book because a lot of this information, even though it might necessarily be brand new, the way it's been presented definitely is a new take. And just what really connected dots for me there, Pat, was like, as you were talking, because I actually, I remember reading through that Pacific part, it's page 74, when you get into um, the... Uh, the pattern two core pelvic focus and because i remember texting this actually to mike boyle because i just brought up thoughts about like diane lee and i know mike is big into it was big into diet diane lee and her whole pelvic stuff but as you explained the the orientations um of the anterior and posterior pelvic floor and the, the muscular actions going on at the, the anterior and posterior pelvic floor between a squat and a deadlift i was like that's another way to categorize it and just then as you were saying like but good coaches were kind of just doing this already. What this area reminds me of too is like, you know, years ago when people were all like, just go on a low carb diet. And then they're like, yeah, low carbs, what made you lose weight? And it's like, no, no, no. If we look at the actual principles, it was the caloric deficit. But you just took a macronutrient out there and it put you in a deficit. And now it's like, oh, now I know the underlying principles here of this. And it gives me so much more scope to like understand my practice. It's like, oh, it doesn't have to be low carb. It just needs to be deficit. And it's kind of like going back to, oh, when I was doing a goblet squat, I was putting the pelvic floor in this position. And then when I was doing these strategies for the hinge, I was putting the pelvic floor in this position. Because even when you said there with the hinge, because I know a lot more people would struggle, maybe a lot more people would utilize like corrections for a goblet squat, maybe more so than than hinging like you know but when you said like when you just said like pronate the hands there or interim rotate for the hinge it made me think of mike robertson's reaching hinge why does that work because obviously it's it's that's putting the pelvic floor into that position and obviously we know why the goblet's got and the heels elevated work we always do that and then the shortened lever then it just uh it that that made that made this whole section that come together for me but for the listeners if if you haven't at least uh, some sort of introductory knowledge to some of these concepts when you get like into the later chapters of this book it's it's you, you do need to study this to, to really start to to absorb it um and this is why i want to talk to you about it too i i think too what we skipped over to was the um the six foundational principles which we'll touch on the next day because they were important you know veritability and the other ones too that went into mm. that. um because they are important they do lay a good foundation for what we've already touched on and what we will touch into so the way I see this going is um, maybe we'll go back initially in our next conversation, touch on those foundations. I'm going to investigate a little more deeply into some of the stuff we spoke today, but then we'll take that chapter by chapter of how it goes with each one of those 13 movement patterns. Um, and again, the way you laid out the book is beautiful and it's very, very logical, but the concepts are great. Re- really, like it's just, as I said to you, when I got to that section on the Big Ten, I was like, right, he's he's really like sat down and thought about this and 
there's there's depth to this like you know again the same the sort of mastery of this topic yeah you know when i when i did when i was doing the seminars only really you know i had kind of rethinking the big patterns one and then rethinking the big patterns two and the thing that actually was the difference between the two seminars was uh the big 10 like it was it was those principles of progression that and that that at the time was basically like a whole two-day seminar it was just those those 10 principles um and it, it i think it makes sense when you when you really i mean there's in each one of those principles there's it's like a very uh there's a universe inside each one of them, you know, even if you just get into training load, you know, I think I specify in the book, like, uh, you know, minimize load. It's like, it doesn't just mean minimize the weight on the bar for this exercise. It's kind of like, look like, uh, like Mike Isertel's volume landmarks live inside this concept. Tim Gabbett's acute to chronic training load ratio lives inside this concept. Uh, and each of those is its own universe. Uh, so that, that like, I'll tell you when I'm making mistakes in my own training and in the, in the training sessions of the clients that I work with, I always go back to the same big 10 and I'm like, oh, I'm violating like seven out of 10 of my own principles. Like no wonder this is not going well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, listen, as always great to catch up and great to hear your thoughts and i i know how much work you put into this book because it's funny i i can remember when we had a, a podcast in around the time of um the reckoning the first reckoning because it was a very busy time for you you had the reckoning and you had that tri trip to china so like i can remember like like pat davidson before even the seed for this book was planted so it's something like that. that was like uh, november 2017 so it's yeah. uh, it, it's just like you know within such a, a i suppose relatively short time span like how this just like metamorphosized into this like this absolute beast of a, of a book you know this this thesis of yours so um no there's definitely sections i want to review and and go into because me myself personally like even i've done build intensive i wouldn't be as well versed in some of those concepts as even some of the people that would be there you know so the the compression um um and expansion strategies you know concentric versus eccentric you know and th those kind of like i understand the big 101 picture but getting down to the nitty-gritty and you know the counter mutation mutations of the of the of the pelvis and in certain positions and just and then particularly then when you start talking about your progressions with certain exercise movements you know like the movements you're using like you know like the 1990 positions and then like the, the, the split stance positions on the side for more reference when you're using the wall and the heel like again that's why it's so important i think and the way you laid out the book is so logical as you need those sort of foundational principles to be like oh that's why he's progressing that exercise that way with those reference points in that style with the rib cage and the pelvis in that position so again i think it, for anyone listening if, if you you'd be a bit lost like if you haven't some sort of knowledge of of the information in the book just before i go pat too I take it this book is like the manual or the textbook for your thinking, uh, rethinking the big patterns. Yeah. Course. And just, you yeah. recently put that out online. Is it, it's online mm. and, and then you have to pass an exam and then it's a live course. Is that how it goes? Yeah. So it, there's a, there's a website, it's a platform. It's a, like it's through inspire 360, which like, like Mike Boyle uses the same, the same uh, platform. 
so you go on there and there's the introductory material for, for rethinking the big patterns on there. So it is, it's those foundational principles. They're, they're all included in there uh, as well as the big, as the seven pillars. Like there's, there's just uh, online lectures that I recorded for all of those things. And then there's a, a quiz that you take that's, that's on all of these introductory principles. So once you've passed that, then your name goes into the system and you'll be able to sign up for the in-person seminars. And I'm going to have three different ones. And I'm going to use the month of August to really create the, the presentations for all of these. But I'll have, I'll have one as a uh, breathing and core exercise seminar. Uh, a second one that'll be called athletic patterns. That's going to be uh, locomotion, triple extension, change of direction and throwing. And then the third one will be the resistance training patterns. And they'll, they'll each be a two-day seminar, I, I, I think. I, I would love to be able to make them one day. I know that's easier for people, but I kind of can't imagine actually being able to consolidate that much information into one day. Like, uh, yeah, exactly. you know, it's, it's impossible. But I, I don't want to have to keep teaching the foundational concepts at every seminar. So it's like I need to make it this way so that people are, are accountable and knowledgeable going in. Uh, so that we can really actually coach this stuff and have people learn the hands-on and the application stuff. So once people have done the seminars, then they'll be able to go back to the platform and there's going to be a giant final exam. And the final exam will be from the book. It'll be from the, the in-person seminars. And when people pass the final exam, they'll be certified uh, coaches through this system. Uh, no, uh, Sami Sheikh made no way could that be one day, but I definitely think the best way is online so that you don't have to do the foundational concepts over and over and over. That I think that's perfect that people should go to that online, have to pass an exam. So by the time they get to in life, they have you know that they have a, a competent level of understanding of this model and then from yep. there take it on. But uh, yeah, it's uh, listen. I just want to say this while people like say that publicly congratulations I mean this is a phenomenal book it's a phenomenal piece of work and one you should be very proud of I mean from just one friend to another I was very proud of it when I saw it like oh, when I got my hands on it, I was like Pat this is amazing because I know how much work you put into it Um, listen I gotta go uh, I gotta run out of a yep. session in 25 minutes Um, I will text you later and we'll set up a time for part two um, yeah, let's make it sooner rather than later. I, I, I'll have more of these Wednesdays available now great. too, so that'll be that'll be perfect. Great, great. Well, sure. Um, yeah, sure. We'll sort that out, and we'll we'll definitely get it going. I'll say goodbye to you offline. But for everyone else listening, as I say at the end of every podcast, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.